Most of you guys would probably have a lot wiser, better things to say to me than I do to you. Um, so it's really an honor to be able to speak to you guys today. Um, so I'm, I'm graduating college in May with a degree in kinesiology, which is just a fancy way of saying I'm getting my Bachelor of Science in lifting weights. <laughs> um, and I'm in this weird season of knowing that I'm not really in real life yet, right? Um, I'm just waiting for May to hit, for real life to hit. Um, I'm graduate, uh, like I said, I'm graduating with my degree in kinesiology, but I also feel this pull towards ministry. And while I have some like, aspirations of what that might look like, I really have no idea how the Lord is going to bring those two things together. And honestly, I'm just kind of here, and I'm just waiting. I'm just waiting for the Lord to just do it. I'm like, Lord, like, whatever you're doing in my life, whatever my ultimate desti destiny is with you, just get me past the waiting. Just like, get me there. Get me past the finish line. And I've been so anxious lately, just trying to figure out where the Lord is taking me and when I'm going to get there. Um, I hate waiting. Waiting is the worst. <laughs> Pastor Mitch hates waiting, too. A couple, a couple days ago, we were meeting uh, to talk about this sermon to make sure I didn't say anything heretical. And, and Mitch was like, hey, meet me at the, uh, at the biscuit place. And I was like, ideal. Like, I love biscuits. And then, <laughs> and then, like, ten minutes later, he's like, there's a wait. There's a wait at the biscuit place. Meet me at the croissant place. I was like, all right, let's go get croissants. So we all hate waiting, right? And to some extent... That's true of all of us. Life is chocked full of waiting. Waiting to graduate college, waiting to have kids, waiting to get married, waiting to start a business. If you've already started a business or you're working, waiting to retire, everyone is waiting. And the natural tendency in the waiting is to take things into our own hands, to take control. And the lie of control is that more control will always give you more peace. But what I found in my life is that the more control I have, I don't get more peace. The more control I have, it leads to more chaos. And this is what I want to unpack for us today. Peace is not the result of controlling the story. Peace is the result of keeping our eyes on the shepherd. Thankfully for us, the Bible records an entire biography of someone who looks a lot like us, someone who wrestled for control his entire life. And that someone is Jacob. So for the last several months, we've been going through the story of Joseph. But here in Genesis 46, the focus pans over from Joseph, and we get one of our last glimpses of Joseph's father, Jacob. And in this last glimpse of Jacob, we get to watch a really special scene in his life. And that is, we get to see the last time that God ever speaks to Jacob, the last promise God ever makes to him. But to get the full beauty of this last promise, I want to rewind his entire life and look at the first promise that God ever made to Jacob in Genesis chapter 28. So Jacob, early in his life, was a lot like us. Jacob's early life was characterized by taking things into his own hands, trying to manipulate situations and gain control. And remember, even though Jacob knew his identity, he knew he was the chosen son of God. Not son of God. One of the chosen sons of God. He manipulated his brother 
into selling him the birthright. And then instead of waiting on God to fulfill the promise, he manipulates his father into fulfilling the promise. And where does all of this control lead Jacob? It leads him to chaos. It leads him to rock bottom. Because like us, Jacob believed that more control in his life would lead to more peace. But more control leads him to absolute rock bottom. It leads him to fleeing his homeland of Beersheba and sleeping in the middle of a field, homeless, with his head on a rock. Jacob's ladder. But do you remember God's response to Jacob in all of this? After Jacob has blatantly ignored God's promises and anxiously taken things into his own hands and completely manipulated his brother and dishonored his father, do you remember God's response? God comes to him in the middle of the night and in his kindness, God meets Jacob with his presence. And not only does he meet Jacob with his presence, but he comes and he does the most intimate thing that he can possibly do and he makes Jacob a promise. And this is the first promise that God ever made Jacob. In the midst of Jacob's running, manipulating, and wrestling, wrestling for control, God comes to him and in Genesis 28, 13 through 14, God says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you. And not only that, but your offspring, they're going to be like the dust of the earth. And not only that, but all the families of the earth will be blessed through your family. That is what our God is like. He says, hey, in the middle of you taking control, in the middle of you manipulating situations, I just have something that I want to give you. I have something that I want to bless you with. But that's not even the best part because that's only the first half of the promise. The second half of the promise, God says, behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. He seals himself to Jacob, and that's what our God is like. He says, at your lowest, not only do you get my presence in the moment, but I'm not going anywhere, ever. I will not leave you until I make good on every single word. And Jacob, he responds in classic Jacob fashion. After seeing the presence of God and getting this intimate promise, he makes a bargain with God. He says, if you will go with me, if you will be my God, if you will protect me, then I'll make you my God. But even though he makes a bargain with God, God's heart is set on Jacob. And when he promises something, it is as good as done. It is sealed. So from here we see a shift from Jacob knowing the promises in his head to hearing the promises from the mouth of God himself. We see a shift from him knowing the promises in the waiting to knowing the promise, sir, in the waiting. And his life was never the same because when you get one glimpse of the promiser, and his goodness, and his faithfulness, and his tenderness, you go from trying to take everything into your own hands to understanding that it's been in his hands all along. Because not only is the promiser up there, faithfully following through on every word, he sealed himself to Jacob, and like a tender shepherd, 
He says, I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. So after this first promise, while Jacob doesn't wait perfectly, we do see a shift in Jacob's life going from wrestling to waiting. Wrestling for control to waiting on God. Where do we see this? Well, we see Jacob waiting on God for 14 years for a wife. And then finally God gives him his beloved Rachel. And then Jacob and Rachel wait on God for their beloved son. And then finally, it says that God remembered Rachel and Jacob and listened to their prayers and he opened Rachel's womb. And Jacob's beloved son, Joseph, is born. But those seasons of waiting that God was teaching Jacob were nothing compared to the valley that the shepherd was about to lead Jacob into. Because then, after 17 years with his beloved son, one day, as the sun is setting, the ten older boys come in from, from a long day, work, long day of work, and they approach their father with a deceptive grief on their face, doing their very best not to blow their cover, and they give their father the robe that he made for his son, and it's covered in blood. And they say, Dad, we found this. Do you know whose this is? And that deceptive grief, like we found out later, is turned into a deep inner guilt as they watch their father tear his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and mourn the loss of his beloved son, the son he was so proud of. The father and the son separated for the first time ever. In Jacob's mind, his beloved son was gone forever. He was dead. From Jacob's perspective, the shepherd had led him into the valley of the shadow of death, end of story. But from the shepherd's perspective, he was leading Jacob through the valley of the shadow of death. So for 22 years, Jacob lived in the sorrow of his beloved son's death. But he held on to the promise. You're with me, and you will keep me wherever you go. And after 22 years of waiting on the shepherd and trusting his first promise that God gave him, Jacob gets some news. And that leads us to our passage for today, Genesis 45, verses 25 through 28. It says, So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive. And he is the ruler over all the land of Egypt. I love this part. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. The shepherd had led him through the valley. And do you remember the second part of the promise? Jacob, I am with you, and I will protect you wherever you go. He came through on every syllable. Jacob made it through the valley, because the shepherd was with him every step of the way. And that leads us to verse 1 of chapter 46. So Jacob, he took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. Jacob is returning to his homeland of Beersheba. Think about the fulfillment here. Remember the last time where Jacob is fleeing, he's fleeing from Beersheba. So when he receives the first promise, he's fleeing Beersheba, and now he's coming back to Beersheba, and he gets the last promise. 
So why did Jacob stop in his homeland to make sacrifices to God? Well, he's seeking the will of God like we do so often. He's seeking the will of God because he's afraid to go to Egypt. And he's afraid to go to Egypt for two reasons. First of all, because he knows his family history and he knows that it was never God's will for his dad Isaac or his grandpa Abraham to go to Egypt before him. In Genesis 26, Isaac is about to go to Egypt because there's a famine in Canaan and God explicitly tells um, Isaac not to go. And before that, when Abraham goes to Egypt, he lies to Pharaoh and he says that Sarah, his wife, is his sister and then God has to intervene so that Pharaoh doesn't marry his sister. And on that same trip, Abraham and, Sa- Abraham and Sarah buy a bond slave by the name of Hagar. So for Isaac, Egypt has a bad taste in his mouth. But uh, he's also afraid for a second reason because he knows the promise that God made him. And he's been, he's been clinging to this promise his entire life. And the promise was that God would give the land of Canaan to Jacob's descendants. So how then would it be God's will for Jacob to leave Canaan, the land of the promise, with his descendants, the people of the promise, and go to Egypt, a place where it has never before been God's will for the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to go. So he's seeking God's will. He's in the, Beersheba is the very southernmost city in the land of Canaan, and he's seeking God's will before he enters Egypt because for years and years and years, he's taken things into his own hands and he's wrestled for control. And finally, we see him giving his situation to the shepherd and saying, this is what I want to do. I want to go to Egypt, but I'm scared. I'm scared to take things into my own hands because every time I do, I hurt people, I hurt myself, and I end up in chaos. So Lord, I give this to you. Do I have your blessing? And our God is so kind. He has a way of giving us back the things that we surrender to him. And he knows Jacob, and he knows how many times Jacob has messed up, and he knows how afraid Jacob is to mess up again. And just like how at rock bottom God met Jacob with his first promise, again we see Jacob afraid, and again we see God meet him with this last promise. And before I read the last promise, remember the first promise. In the first promise, God says, I am the God of your father. I will make you into a great nation. I will be with you, and I will bring you back to this land. And now here's the last promise. Almost 100 years later, God says, verse 2, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob said, here I am. And then God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid, for I will make you a great nation. I myself will go with you, and I will bring you back again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. It's the same promise. The last promise and the first promise are identical. But the, first, the last promise, this promise, is even better. That's what our God is like. He says, yes, you can go to Egypt, I'm still your God. I will still make you into a great nation. I'm, I will still be with you, and I'm still going to bring you back again. Oh, and Joseph, he's there too. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, we may interpret the promises of God on the most liberal scale. Why? Because he will never fall short on his promises, but he will go beyond his word in giving you more than what you ever thought he meant. Amen. This is what our God is like. He fulfills and confirms the first promise 
in a way that's better than Jacob could have ever imagined. And we see two differences, though. There are two differences between the last promise and the first promise. First of all, he says, Joseph is alive. Joseph is alive. But why did God wait until now to tell Jacob that Joseph is alive? Because for the last 22 years, God knew that, ja- that Joseph was alive. Why didn't he just tell Jacob? If he's such a good shepherd, why didn't he just lead Jacob around the valley? Why would a good shepherd ever lead someone into the valley of the shadow of death? It makes no sense. But actually, it does make sense. Because there's this fact about waiting on the shepherd in the chaos that I think that most of us can attest to, and it's this. In the waiting, you will experience more intimacy with the shepherd than you will at any other time of your life. Because when the only thing you have to look at is the shepherd, the only thing you can do is commune with him. There's a second difference, though. And this is where we can really see how much that intimacy grew between God and Jacob. And that difference is God calls Jacob by name. In the first promise, God says, I am the Lord. But in this promise, he says, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob knows his voice. He knows the voice of his shepherd. And he says, here I am, Lord. And as I was studying this passage and trying to kind of tie these ideas of Jesus, the good shepherd, and Jacob together, I was trying to figure out the significance of of God calling Jacob by name. And then I remembered John chapter 10. John chapter 10 is is titled, Jesus, the Good Shepherd. In John chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, it says, To the shepherd, the gatekeeper opens the door. The sheep, they hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name. And he leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Jesus calls Jacob by name. And Jacob knows his shepherd's voice, and he follows him. It says, then immediately, as soon as Jacob gets the promise, he sets out from, from Beersheba to Egypt. Jacob didn't bargain with God this time. This time, because of the intimacy that was built in the valley, that 22-year valley, Jacob knew his shepherd's voice. And that he knew when his shepherd said, I will go with you to Egypt, that he meant it. And Jacob's shepherd went ahead of him, and Jacob followed him, because he knew his voice. The good shepherd goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And Jesus, Jacob's good shepherd, leads Jacob safely to Egypt to see Joseph face to face. Genesis 46, 29 through 30, the reunion. Then Joseph prepared his chariot, and he went up to meet Jacob, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him, and he fell on his neck, and he wept on his neck a good while. Jacob said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face, and I know that you are still alive. God was faithful to the end to fulfill his promise to Jacob and to go further 
and to let Jacob see Joseph face to face before he died. But remember, over the last couple months as we've been talking about Joseph, we've been talking about Joseph as a type of Christ, as a, as a foreshadowing of the one to come. So while God fulfills all of his promises to Jacob, he gives us, his church, today, his bride, something even better. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 19 through 20 say, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the one who Joseph, jo- Joseph is representing, whom we proclaim to you, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Every single promise that God has ever made in the span of history is yes and amen to us, his bride, in the name of Jesus. But it goes on to say, and it is God who establishes us with Christ, and he has anointed us, and he has put his seal on us, and he has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Just like for Jacob, God makes us a promise, and he seals it with his presence. But we don't get a first and a last promise like Jacob. We get every promise fulfilled in Jesus. And for us, God doesn't just say, I will go with you, like he does for Jacob. For us, God seals the promise by saying, I will go in you as a guarantee. To Jacob, God says, you will see Joseph face to face, and he will be there to close your eyes. To us, he says, you will see Jesus face to face, and he will be there not to close your eyes, but he will be there to wipe every tear from your eyes. And from Jacob's life story, I literally have two points of application, two things that I want you guys to think about, cling to, process as we leave. Number one, in the midst of, con- of the confusion of the enemy, remember what your shepherd calls you. So Jesus called J- Jacob by name. And Jesus calls you by name too. And what's the significance of a name? A name is simply, it is someone's like deepest identity. Jesus says, I know my sheep, I know them, and I call them by name. So if Jesus calls you by name and he knows you, the name that he calls you is the truest thing about you. And what name does he call us? Like I just read in in 2 Corinthians, it is God who establishes us, it is God who has anointed us, it is God who has put his seal on us, And he has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So what name does Jesus call you? He calls you established. He calls you anointed. He calls you sealed. He calls you filled with his spirit. He calls you child of God, guaranteed, if you have come to Jesus. You are so safe with your shepherd. And like Mitch said last week, we need to get to a point where we accept that we are accepted in Christ. And not only accept it, but we need to start fighting from that place. We need to start fighting the devil and his lies from a place of identity. He knows our name. When Jesus is baptized and he comes out of the water, the voice of the Father says, This is my beloved Son. 
in whom I am well pleased. And then Jesus is driven to the wilderness. What is the first thing the enemy does? He questions the identity that the father just spoke over his son. John 10.10 says that the thief comes to kill, steal, and and destroy. And he knows he can't kill our souls. He knows he can't destroy our souls. He knows he can't steal us out of the flock. So what's he going to do? He's going to make you think. He's going to question your identity and make you think that you're not part of the flock. He's going to try to talk louder than the shepherd calling you by name. So you can, you can bet that the first thing that you're going to hear after Jesus calls you by name, after Jesus calls you established, anointed, sealed, filled, the first thing you're going to hear is, you're not really a son. You're not really a daughter. You're not, you're not actually, you don't actually have the spirit in you. And as a church, we need to start fighting the accuser from a place of identity. Jesus calls you by name. God has established you in Christ. He has anointed you. He has put his seal on you. He has put his spirit in you as a guarantee. If you've come to Jesus, you're a child of God. In the midst of confusion, remember what Jesus calls you. The second thing that I think that we can boil out down from from Jacob's life, if we were to take his running, his, his taking control, the first promise that God gives him, 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 learning to follow the shepherd, and then the second promise that God gives him. I think that this might be a lesson that Jacob would say to us. Look for the face of the shepherd, not the end of the weight. Look for the face of the shepherd, not the end of the weight, because you don't control the path. You don't control where the shepherd leads you. That's the shepherd's job. And that's the thing about a shepherd where the sheep ends up reflects more on the shepherd than it does on the sheep. So if the shepherd leads you into the valley, if you're in the valley right now, it's the shepherd's job to get you out of the valley. And he promises that he will. He promises that it will all work out for your good. Whether that means leaving the 99 to go find the one that's running away from him like he did for Jacob with the first promise, or calling one of his oldest sheep in the flock by name, assuring them that you will see his face soon, like he does for Jacob in the second promise. Either way, if you know the shepherd, there is no path that you are on that will not lead to ultimate victory. There is no path that you are on that will not lead to ultimate victory if you know the shepherd. So look for the face of the shepherd, not the end of the way. This is the last thing I'm going to say, and um, the worship team can come up as I finish here. Um, look for the face of the shepherd, not the end of the way. Robert Murray McShane says, for every, every look at yourself, give 10 looks to Christ. And when we hear that, we're like, okay, look at the shepherd, not the end of the way. Give 10 looks to Christ. Like, What does that actually mean? Well, John chapter 1 says that Jesus is the living and active word of God. So how do I take 10 looks at the face of Jesus the shepherd? I take 10 looks at his word. 
Because I know for me, when I take my eyes off the shepherd, when I take my eyes off of his word, and I start looking at me, it leads me to pride, it leads me to selfishness, it leads me to insecurity. Why? Because I'm just a sheep. I'm not the shepherd. But when we look at his word, it's not a religious exercise. It's not about checking off a box. It's not about learning, earning something from God. It's about looking at the face of Jesus. Because when we look at the face of the shepherd, like Jacob, we remember his promises. And we remember how big he is and how safe we are. And we remember that he isn't going anywhere and he will lead us through the valley. And that he is the promise maker and that he is the promise keeper. And if he leads you into the valley, it's his job to lead you out. And that is how we face the waiting. We look for the face of the shepherd not the end of the wait. So let's all stand. I'm going to close in a word of prayer.